Well, the love mentioned in our text today, 1 Corinthians 13, is the word agape. There's many words for love in the scriptures, or at least a few, and they might refer to like a friendship, brotherly love, a more romantic type love. And this love uh, is referencing more of a lack of self-interest, more of an unconditional love that's not interested in self, but is others-focused. And to give it all away, only Christ Jesus has this love. This type of love fulfills the law, and he's done this for us. But this love that Paul is talking about is not being pursued by the Christians uh, at Corinth. You see, at the expense of the weak and the marginalized, the outsiders, and maybe the more weak consciences in their congregations, at their expense, the Christians in Corinth were insistent on their own ways and seeing their own priorities and their own social statuses advanced. And they're not seeing, they're not worried about seeing the body of Christ matured. And so just for a little bit of context, Corinth was a, a very big city, very important city, uh, a big import city. And uh, it was full of many gods and many lords, Paul tells us in chapter 8. And it was full of, of lots of people who took, took major pride in their social status. Uh, and this is a place where, where so many religions and, and so many, uh, you know, ideologies just collided. And so this pagan worship ended up in, in, the, in the laws of the land and government, political places. It ends up in the worship of, of all kinds of gods and lords, ends up in, the, in social clubs and just daily life. I mean, it's the in and out of Corinth. Uh, and it's, it's very haughty. It's a very arrogant city, full of arrogant people. And it seems that this has infiltrated and influenced uh, the, the Christians at Corinth. And there's this disunity, and there's this elitism, this one-upmanship, and there's divisiveness that's really characterizing this church. And at the heart of their disunity was an arrogance. It was an arrogance not thinking, oh, we're better than, than this city. It was an arrogance that pitted them against one another in the church. Uh, and so there was also this considerable amount of sexual immorality. There was lots of theological confusion uh, about many things in the Christian life that Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians. And as he opens up his letter, I want us to notice, with all of that in mind, what Paul does. As he knows that this arrogance is at the heart of their problem, what does he do? Look with me uh, at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You might have made your way to 13. Flip all the way back to chapter 1. I just want to make this point, and then we'll, we'll jump over. So in light of all that I just said, being influenced by the culture of Corinth, they're very arrogant towards one another. There's elitism, divisiveness, disunity, all over the map, confusion. Paul, looking at verse uh, 4 in chapter 1, gives thanks to God because of the grace of God that was given to them in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking any gift. Their giftedness was not the problem. And as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So he wrote, thanks the Lord for their faith, for the gifts that he's given this congregation, for their love for the Lord. Uh, and then he goes on to address, you see in verse 10, 
he, it, just in this one verse, he tells them that they need to agree, that there would be no divisions among them, and that they would be united in the same mind. Now, this is, the ma- this is I think, what Paul is saying. Here is the problem. There's arrogance that, make, that, that, has, that has caused you all to be in disunity. And so what will I do, Paul? What will Paul do in order to first maybe crush that arrogance and then deal with some of these problems? Well, look with me in verse 26 of chapter 1. He goes straight to the goodness of the Lord Jesus. He tells him, you're being arrogant towards one another when none of us were wise. None of us meant anything to the world. Verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful, very wealthy, powerful political people. Not many of you were in noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So what? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Jesus, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So he first thanks God for their faith and reminds them, humbles them with the fact that the king of glory came to them, died in their place. None of us are are worth much at all. And the Lord Jesus died for us. What can we boast? Everything we have that will last for eternity is a gift, is a gift. Everything that we have physically that is temporal is still a gift. Who could boast in the presence of the Lord? And he's dealing with that there. And as we consider, you know, moving towards our text, you can make your way to uh, chapter 13. As we consider what love is, this, this congregation struggling, they're, they're motivated by arrogance, they're just struggling to love one another. As we consider what love is, might we think about what John said in 1 John uh, Chapter 4, 8 through 11, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And beloved, this is true. God is love. And here's the good news. Love came down to us. And so uh, the, after about, you know, chapters 2 through, really on through 10, Paul's dealing with all kinds of theological confusions and clearing up some things, correcting some things, or sexual morality stuff, church discipline, uh, things that he's trying to, to correct. And Really, in verses, uh, chapters 11 through 14, is all about order in the corporate worship. So, like, he's thanking God for their gifts, because these were a gifted group of people, it seems like, and uh, they're using all their good gifts for all the wrong reasons, uh, because they don't have love. They don't understand this love uh, appropriately. They've kind of forgotten that first love. And so, Paul, really, in chapter 13, is, is reminding them, of what love is. Here's how to use your gifts. He's, he's kind of re- referencing that in chapter 12 and chapter 14, orderly worship, how to use those gifts. But then chapter 13 is saying, but here is really the point. Love is 
is the point. And so in each description of love, we're going to think about the meaning of that description, and then we will consider how Jesus is love on each of those uh, descriptions. And it's, it's good to ask ourselves, even, at, even as we read through this, like what kind of love do we pursue with one another in this church and with our neighbors? It's important to be precise, though, when we talk about duties of the Christian life, that we don't get them uh, mingled with how we're saved and how we're kept in the faith. Faith is the cause of love. Love is the fruit of faith. And it's the fruit of faith because we have Christ Jesus, who is love. And without further ado, uh, we will read God's holy, inspired word. Uh, Romans 13 and verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And we praise God for his word today and every day. So this morning, uh, regarding an outline, you know, verses 1 through 3 kind of point this to us. This would maybe be part 1. Verses 1 through 3 is that without love, all of our striving and all of our gifts are used in vain. Without love, all of our gifts and all of our strivings are used in vain. And then 4 through 7 is this personification of love, this personification of love. And then I just want to close with some comments. But we're really just going to go verse by verse, think about it, reflect on it. And uh, we're just going to kind of flow with with the text today. And so let's look at verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You know, Paul mentions tongues a few times before and after this section. And like I said, chapters 12 and chapters 14 and in chapters 12, in chapter 12, he, uh, he's talking about speaking in various kinds of tongues. And then in 14, he's really spent discussing uh, the uses of these tongues and how they should be used. And so we know that tongues were among the spiritual gifts, the unique spiritual gifts given to the church in a unique period of the history of the church for the spread of the gospel to all of God's elect, to all the nations, and uh, for the edification and the building up of the body of Christ as the church is starting and expanding throughout the whole world. But as we look at our text today, imagine uh, if one of us could speak to angels. Imagine if one of us could speak to angels. I mean, publishers would fall over themselves to get this story out. You would be the next interview on the Joe Rogan podcast because you just wrote a book called I Speak to Angels. You know, I mean, mean, people live for this kind of stuff, right? Uh, But notice what Paul is saying. If you could speak angel, you could speak to angels, but you don't have love, you're a noisy gong 
You're a clanging cymbal. He doesn't say that you, you sound like one. Like, it's really cool, but it just doesn't sound cool. He's saying that you are a clanging symbol. Imagine our brother Tommy in the corner as I'm seeking to preach the word of God, banging a gong in the corner of this congregation. I mean, it's, it's so distracting. It doesn't, it's not very pleasant right now. The banging gong in the corner. We're covering our ears. We're looking at him like, what is going on? Uh, and, and, and all eyes would be on him. You could speak angel, and without love, you're a gong seeking attention. Look at me. Look at me. It's all about me. And so uh, this is what Paul's saying, that if you could speak in tongues of, of men and angels, uh, it doesn't sound good to God without love. And as the Corinthians' arrogance shows in the way that they use their gifts, Paul is communicating that love is not the same thing as being very gifted. You can be very gifted and have not love. And it seems that these Corinthian believers were very gifted, but it wasn't pleasing to the Lord because they had not love. And so you may be a gifted teacher, maybe a talented musician. You might be admired for your spiritual prayers, but it means nothing if you do not have love. And so ask yourself, am I more concerned with using my gifts or am I more concerned with serving others? And if we're going to be honest, we want attention. We want to be known for how uh, spiritual we are, for how knowledgeable we are. We want to be known for our gifts. We want the eyes on us. Paul then goes on. We'll reflect on some of this in just a moment. He then goes on in verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers... And understand all mysteries and all knowledge. But, and so this prophecy can be a, a foretelling and a foretelling, right? There's, there's a foretelling all in the scriptures where there's this is what will happen. There's a foretelling where God is claiming his word on the present. Here is the truth. Uh, a foretelling would be here what is what will happen. Uh, foretelling here is what it is in one sense. And there's both in the scriptures. And a lot of the Old Testament prophecy is God foretelling. His word for the present, but Bible prophecy is layered, right? And so these words are, are, are very useful for the present, and they even show greater redemptive realities. Nonetheless, I think that Paul is linking prophecy with, mere, with, with mysteries and knowledge because, because God uses men to explain his word. God uses men to explain his heart to the world, who he is and what he's done. He uses men, and he uses his words to describe that to the world. And so Paul actually, uh, we learn in chapter 14, values prophecy more than any of the gifts. I mean, he speaks volumes, you know, about how great this gift is for the edification of the church. And yet he says, a loveless prophet is useless, is useless. And then he goes on to say, if you could have faith so as to remove mountains, and this is not referring to, like, trusting in Christ, faith, but a faith that could do the impossible, like cause a blind man to see, or like cause a paralyzed man to walk, or as he said, in great exaggeration, cause a mountain to move out of the way because I want to get there. I'm just going to move this hard thing out of my way, this kind of faith that can do the impossible. And we're, we're automatically in awe of people who can explain the Scripture's in a way that just pierces the heart. We should be. We should be. We thank the Lord for men who can preach the scriptures in a way that pierces our hearts, that we understand God and the world better. 
and uh, a person who has mountain-moving faith. But Paul tells the Corinthian believers that you can have these gifts and not have love. And instead of being followed, instead of being supported, instead of edifying the saints, you're nothing. You're nobody. You're actually selfish and prideful. And then verse 3, we'll finish up this part one. I could give away all that I have, and I could deliver up my body to be burned. And if I have not love, I gain nothing. So using this very dramatic language, Paul is describing a martyr for the faith who actually does so so that he may boast in what he's going to do for the Lord. Motivated by selfishness, one could actually give up their life for God. But also, we can be very uh, sacrificial in giving, but do so reluctantly and not lovingly. The intentions and the motives of our hearts are very devious, and we've all kind of been thinking about this as probably as I've been talking this morning. And I know it's not news to you or me that our motives are very devious. And Paul is reminding them of the trap that we can so easily fall into, which is thinking that sacrifice by itself impresses God. Prophecy by itself impresses God. Speaking tongues of angels by itself impresses God. That's a trap. And Paul is laboring for them uh, to live lovingly and sacrificially. But remember how Paul begins this letter of showing the one who is love, showing the one whose sacrifice forgives all of our lovelessness. He is love. And it's in love, in these descriptions even, that we see our Savior. All three of these negatives, you could do this but have not love, actually reveal a positive about our Savior Jesus had all the gifts. Angels ministered him, ministered to him when he, uh, after the 40 days coming out of the desert. Uh, he had all the gifts. And when the disciples struggled to recognize him and his giftedness, he didn't complain. He washed their feet. The king of heaven came to serve, not to be served. Jesus didn't walk around boasting about the sacrifice he would make for everyone. He gave up everything. He left the glories of heaven in fellowship with the Father to put upon our weakness. Why? To save us. To save us. Why? Because he loves us. Because he is love. And the only way that we might be able to live sacrificially and lovingly, using our gifts to serve, not just to be seen, is to be united to, to cling to, to hope in, and to trust in the one who did this for us, that we might be dead to sin and alive to God. This is the only way that we could be encouraged when we read this, is because our Savior did it, and we are alive in him, and therefore can pursue this love. And so, Paul now goes on to personify love as a person in verses 4 through 7. He says that love is patient, verse 4. This word patience is really showing itself in the way we bear with one another. Think about Colossians 3 and Galatians 5. And specifically, the word is a patience in bearing the offenses of another, the injuries of another against us. So when we say love is patient, love is patient when sinned against. Is, is what we're talking about here. Being slow to anger, 
slow to avenge, slow to punish when we've been offended. Like me, some of you are very patient with big mess-ups in life, but you lose it on the small, trivial things on the day-to-day. Others of you are the opposite, maybe. But the kind of patient described here is not natural for us. All of us, when sinned against, want people to be crucified for their sins. You've offended me. You know? And offense after offense, there's apology after apology, and there's forgiveness after forgiveness, 70 times, 70 times. This is patience. It says love is patient, but love is also kind. And this verb literally is to be kind. And it's the only place that this word is used in the scriptures, to be kind. Like, that's the verb, to be kind. Now, if I asked you to define kindness, you might say, well, you know, it's caring and it's thoughtful. And it's, it's, if someone's kind, they're probably, they're meek and they're gentle. And these are all really qualities of kindness. Kindness leads to this kind of living. And although it's hard to define kindness, what we see, even as we uh, talk about what kindness is, it's not very flashy or extravagant. It's gentle and lowly and understanding, caring, thoughtful, meek, not very loud and proud. It's not a gong clanging in the corner. It's lowly and kind. It says that, so love is patient, love is kind, and love does not envy or boast. You can have all the greatest gifts, Paul's saying, uh, and yet be fooled, I mean filled with. You can be ruled by envy. And jealousy is definitely something that the Corinthians struggled with. James talks about it to his uh, flock, and Paul addresses it with the church of Rome. James actually says that where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Jealousy is a wicked sin that eats us from the inside out and will destroy a congregation. Jealousy makes us discontent, and it ruins relationships. It's a slow death from the inside out. It begins to, uh, you know, just step by step by step, just ruin us, ruin us. This also says that love doesn't boast, finishing up that phrase there. It doesn't envy or it doesn't boast. It doesn't brag on itself. Love brings no attention to itself. Love is not self-interested. And there, that last phrase, love is not arrogant. And the picture here of arrogant is like blowing up an inflatable. And imagine I inflate, uh, you know, a person. I inflate them, and instead of using air, I inflate them with pride. Love that is arrogant is a person full of pride, puffed up, just full of pride. It's the picture of arrogance here. Uh, I'm going to read this to you. This is from verse 4. And he talks about arrogance. I mean, chapter 4, verse 6. Paul says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. And here is how he gives them a remedy. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you have not received? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? He goes on to talk about how we have received everything. How could we be boastful? 
How could we be puffed up about this person's teaching or who we follow or who baptized us or what we think or what we know when everything we have has been given to us? Spiritually dead, we were, but now alive to Christ. Paul tells them, there's, there's nothing that we didn't receive. And has not the Lord Jesus been kind to us, brothers and sisters? This patience, this kindness, this humility is not natural to us. And this is why we're under the wrath of God in the first place. It's because none of us, this does not characterize every motive, every thought, every action of every moment of our lives. It needs to if we're going to get to heaven. It needs to if we're going to please the Lord, but it hasn't. But Jesus has been patient. He has been kind. He has been humble. He has fulfilled the laws, every demand down to the heart level. Never was there a moment that he wanted to crucify someone for their sin against them. He actually took their sins on himself for his people. The Son of God, who is love, came down to us. And it was the Father who gave him to us and for us. Think about the gentleness and the lowliness of our Savior. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. These patience, kindness, does not envy or boast, and is not arrogant. Describes our Lord Jesus, and that is quite baffling, saints, that the King of glory would come to his enemies, put on our weakness, and be patient. He should judge us, but he was kind. We read today, he spoke no evil word. He kept silent, taking the wrath of God in our place. We deserve to be crucified. We actually don't deserve his patience. We, of all people, do not deserve to not be punished for our sin. And the Father has decided from eternity past that the Lord Jesus, that he would be patient, and the Lord Jesus would be crucified for our sins. And so Paul in Philippians says, Have this mind among you which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We need the love of Christ for us because we could never love like him. And so verse 5 says that love is not rude. Now, rude is to act unbecomingly. Uh, to, to not be rude would, would be to act seemly. These old words that I had to look up to, to figure out what they meant. Uh, but love is not rude. It's polite. It's caring. It's thoughtful. It's well-mannered in one sense. But, but we need to clear it up. When we're thinking about well-mannered, we're not a, we're not slave. it doesn't mean that we're slaves to the social etiquette. Because if you read the Gospels, Jesus being a, a religious teacher and everything, he acted in ways that the very socially etiquette and religious people absolutely disproved of. They did not approve it, what he was doing. In his uh, acting seemly, or his acting becomely, he didn't keep away the little children 
from coming to him. They were not a waste of his time. He hung out with sinners and people who needed a whole lot of help. They were not the prettiest of people to be seen with, yet Jesus is there offering hope. So to act seemly is not to avoid the weak or the marginalized. It's the opposite. It's to welcome them. Love that is not rude welcomes the weak and the marginalized to offer them help, to offer them hope. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not put out. Gentle and lowly in heart, with gracious words coming from his mouth, is our Savior toward sinners like us, who were once his enemies. He justifies the ungodly, and this is what it means to act becomingly. This is what it means for love to not be rude. But love also doesn't insist on its own way in all of us. If you haven't felt bad at yet, we definitely feel bad now. We're definitely convicted now because I'm sure we have all struggled with just wanting it our way. Wanting it our way. But love doesn't insist on its own way. Romans 12.10, love one another with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. In other words, give preference to one another. Don't fight for your own preference. Philippians 2.4, let each of you look now Uh, Look not only to his own interest, but the interest of others. Love is not being satisfied in our own comfort alone. Love is not being driven by a thirst for significance. I want to be significant. I want my comfort. Love is not directed toward self. Again, that word, love is not self-interested. Now, the world tells us to love yourself more, that this is our kingdom. We're all princes and princesses, and we need to do what makes us happy. But isn't this what got us under the wrath of God in the first place? And we find in the gospel a different message. Jesus actually says that we live by dying to self. Insisting on our own way is what got us into this mess. The first Adam who represented us before God insisted on his own way. And all of humanity has been doing the same thing ever since. And it's only in, church, believe this, it's only in the gospel do we find our identity and our purpose as God has designed it. Nowhere else do we find that. Nowhere. God has revealed it to you. Self-love is what cripples you. The love of Christ is what frees you from that. His love that sought not his own comfort. Jesus' love sought not his own comfort, but his people's good. In him you have identity and you have purpose that leads not to a life of vain pursuits. It leads to a life of love. It leads to a death to self and a freedom whom the sun sets free, we sang, is free indeed. And our worst trouble is that we love self so much more than anyone and anything. In Christ, we have freedom. The writer in Ecclesiastes says that all is vanity. Yes, apart from Christ. But a life in Christ is not a life in vanity. The Lord is using all things to work, is is working all things for our good. 
And he is actually using all things, physical, everything is working toward redemption. And a life in Christ is not one that screams, all is vanity. You may feel that way. Life is very mundane, and we don't see all that God's doing, and our faith lacks, our love lacks. We have hope. Life in Christ is not vain. It also says that, uh, so it's not insistent on its own way, and it's not irritable. It's not irritable. It's not easily aroused to anger. We are so, maybe it's me, but I would say that we are so easily frustrated when things just go wrong. Just the little trivial things that just don't go how, well, I didn't know I expected it to go this way, but it didn't go this way, and now I'm frustrated, just so easily frustrated about just the trivial things in life. It could be people in our lives, you know, events in the world as we keep up with news. It could be just circumstances in our life where we find ourselves that just cause this anger, this irritability, this frustration. And irritability is actually rooted in a small view of our sin. Our irritations are always the fault of someone else. It's always outside of us. It's our circumstances. It's what this person did. It's what's happening out there. We never see it coming from our hearts. Our hearts and our sin is never the problem. We have this, thank God that I am not like this sinner approach. Or we feel like we deserve better. And so we're discontent with where we find ourselves or in our circumstances. But what about when we're irritated by our circumstances and, uh, like, what, what do we do with that? With, with people, we realize that, well, we always hate their sin more than ours. We think that they're the problem, not us. Easy fix, right? Remember, you're the problem. Easy fix. But what about when our circumstances, you can't really change much about our circumstances. Same thing. Until we get a hold of the love of God for us and his providential hand in our lives to be working all things out for our eternal good, we will stay constantly mad. And what's hard is that a life free of irritations doesn't exist in this world. Only Christ's. And what's interesting about being frustrated with our circumstances is that God says that he's actually using trials of various kinds to uh, strengthen our faith, to produce steadfastness in us. And it's actually through a life of suffering in the cross that he is working and that we should expect suffering, expect trials, expect that what the evil one means for good and even our own sin, I mean, the evil one means for for harm and what our sin means for harm, God's actually working all things out for eternal good. It's this life is one of the cross now, suffering now, glory later. Jesus himself learned obedience through suffering, and his own people didn't receive him. See in Jesus a posture of not my will be done, but yours. And he didn't do that just so that you could see a good example. He did that because you can't do it. He did that for you. Father, not my will, yours be done. He did that to fulfill all righteousness. And now his life is ours. His mind is ours. We can pursue this. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. See his resurrection 
as your hope that all things are working out for good. And when he appears, you will be like him. Your life is hidden in Christ. So when you die, you gain. But love also is not resentful, the last part of verse 5. And these words literally mean this. Love counts up. Love does not count up wrongdoing. Love doesn't keep a list of wrongs. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It doesn't reckon a person with the wrong they've done against us. Is this not true of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ? Our salvation was planned by God before time began. And, and, and it's important to remember that Jesus didn't die so that the Father would love us. It was precisely because the Father loves us that Jesus came to live for us and to die in our place. The Father shows his love for us in this way. He sent his Son to die for us so that we might believe in him and have everlasting life. Sinclair Ferguson reminds us here, he says, there's nothing un-Jesus-like in the Father. There's nothing un-Jesus-like in the Father. In other words, when we're thinking about uh, love not being resentful, uh, it forgives. Love forgives. It doesn't hold a record of wrongs. It doesn't even count them up. Like jealousy, resentfulness will kill you from the inside out. Timothy Keller says it this way, you are enslaved to the person you do not forgive. You are enslaved to the person you do not forgive. And we may not feel forgiveness towards one another, but we do it anyway because God said so. And because we have been forgiven of far worse than any person could ever do to us. A person on planet earth could not hurt you as much as you have sinned against a holy God in heaven. And he has forgiven you of all your sin and given you a hope forever. Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. You can forgive. You may not feel it. You may not feel it for the rest of your life. But you can forgive. And because of our standing being secure, our standing before God being secure in Christ Jesus, he remembers not our sins. He will forgive and he does not count our wrongs against us. He does not count our iniquities against us, saints. Verse 6, <clears throat> love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Yet if we're left to our natural desires, we heard it even confessed in this morning in the confession of sin. If we're left to our natural desires, we do all the wrong things, rejoice in them, and approve it in others. We read this from Romans 1 and 2. But Christian love, moves, Christian love moves in a different direction. It doesn't rejoice in sin. It doesn't rejoice in the consequences of sin. It rejoices in God and his grace. Now, the Bible affirms that rejoicing is a matter of the heart. We rejoice at the things that our heart loves. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so our lives are full of these, these just many ordinary and mundane moments, and we rejoice often. We lament often, but we rejoice often. If you count, what all did I rejoice at today? I mean, the argument would be that we rejoice at just, just so many things that probably aren't the love of Christ. 
Is it wrong to rejoice at the things that we rejoice over? No, we probably rejoice at many happy, good gifts from the Lord. My question is how often we rejoice at the love of Christ for us, or how often we just forget it. It's not in our mind. It's not in our hearts. This is why it's natural for us to do the wrong things and celebrate it in others. So what do we rejoice over? Is it rooted in God and his grace? Or are we more joyful about winning an argument with our spouse or one of our friends? Are we more joyful about seeing our reputations rise in society? It's these small details of our lives that reveal what we really rejoice over. And yes, in these moments, we see that we are sinners. We are great sinners. And it's in these moments that we trade Uh, When we see this, what we're doing is we're trading the truth about God for a lie, and we rejoice over all the wrong things. But Christ Jesus has come to remake all the wrong done by the first Adam. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing. He redeems it. We were wrong. He has redeemed us. Saints, we still believe the lies. He is redeeming us. And when he returns, all will be made new. And then verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, it hopes all things, endures all things. These verses still further teach us that we're naturally selfish. And we seek to save ourselves at others' expense rather than giving our shoulders for our brothers' and sisters' burdens. And so he begins... Love bears all things. And this word bear is to cover. It's to preserve something by covering it like a roof. It images someone uh, enduring with someone because there is a threat. There's something wrong. There's a threat. I must cover my brother. I must cover my sister. Think about Noah after getting off the ark. Ends up drunk and naked in his tent. What does his sons do? The younger son sees him, and runs his mouth. The older two walk backwards because it would be shameful to look upon someone's nakedness. They walk backwards with the cloth to cover up their father. That is a description of bearing all things, to cover our brother and sister when they're struggling with sin and they're just not doing well. What would love do? It would not expose them to the public or leave them in their misery. Like the walls of a house and a roof, it would protect them from the elements of the outside. Love would meet them in private and bear with them in very difficult matters and difficult times for as long as it took. We could love so much better, couldn't we, church? In this way, especially. The law says that we're to love God and love our neighbors. And if we don't, we're cursed under the wrath of God. Bearing all things... The Lord Jesus has covered us, and he's counted us with the perfect love, which has fulfilled the law, because we haven't done it, and bearing our cross, taking our curse, curse of our sin upon his innocent shoulders, he dies in our place. The Lord Jesus bears us, bears with us. He covers us in him. We are hidden in the rock of ages. We're protected from the wrath of God on our sin 
And by the righteousness of Christ and his death in our place, we are safe. But love also believes all things. Paul's not saying that as long as you have faith in love, you can just believe anything you want. That's not what, what he means by believing all things. But he's saying a better understanding here is that love believes the best about people. A result of being in a fallen world is that we're all cynical. And most of us walk around wondering what bad things people might be thinking of us. Because we often are thinking the worst about people and we're trying to stop ourselves and correct ourselves and not think that way. And we're all just walking around like this. But love assumes the best in people. Unless there's an obvious reason for the contrary, love is going to operate in good faith and assume that their brother and sister means to do them well, not harm. Rather than walking around distrusting everyone and everything, love trusts their brothers and sisters in Christ, and they're, and they're motivated to do them good. Here's an example. Here's the fulfillment of this. The Lord Jesus knows the worst of us all. He knows the worst of us, and he comes to save us anyway. We're all sinners, very bad people before God. Does that shock any of us about each other? And I trust, as you look around at each other, when we finish this service, you see people who struggle with sin, but want to love. It's a room full of people because you've been redeemed by the Lord Jesus. You want to love. You fail often. You want to treat each other, each other this way. The Lord Jesus knows the worst of you, comes to save you anyway. He, that mind, is the, our mind. The mind of Christ, the life of Christ, this is what we have. So this is what we seek after in believing all things. <clears throat> Love hopes all things. Hopes all things. Romans 5.5 5 says that hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Furthermore, Ephesians 1, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Hope is working in us, and we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And so although we don't experience everlasting life yet, we have the guarantee of heaven, and that changes everything for us. The hope of love is that God keeps his promises. And the person who loves is expectant for them to be fulfilled. This is primarily speaking to how no matter what we face in this life, all kinds of sufferings and trials, we will never be put to shame. A life that completely trusts the faithfulness of God None of us feel very assured that, that we're, we're great people of hope. We want to be. When we are faithless, he remains faithful because the Lord Jesus lived a life of complete trust in the Father, bowing to his Father's will, always trusting in the Father in every way that we just are mired with anxieties and worries in the cares of this life. The Lord Jesus trusted in his Father perfectly. For you. But love also endures all things. And this finishes up our text here. Love endures all things. This endures to remain. Specifically, it's to remain steady under tremendous pressure. 
We have countless examples of God's people, uh, you know, enduring some things and failing to endure all things. The history of God's people is not one of hoping all things and enduring all things, but rather hoping some things and enduring some things. And so God's people have this story of giving up on God and making their own way. Think about Abraham. He promises a son, so what does he do? Ah, the Lord needs my help. I mean, we're getting old. Let me help him out. Think about Peter. Peter confesses that he's the Christ, says he's going to die, and he's like, no, you're not. He cuts off the, the soldier's ear for Christ, then denies Jesus. I mean, it's, it's, this, is, this is really the story of God's people, enduring some things, hoping some things, and just up and down and all around. Really, if God isn't fast enough, we're going to try to help him out. He seems to just not do it the way we'd want. You know, uh, brothers and sisters, Jesus endured the agony of Calvary, lived the perfect life, and on his innocent shoulders, he bore our cross. Enduring the weight of obedience, putting on weakness, putting on our weakness, he never failed. Tempted as we are yet without sin, he endured. Loving the Father perfectly, loving neighbor perfectly, and endured the agonies of the suffering we deserve so that you and I can sit here. And although this damns us, it also gives us life because of the Lord Jesus. And so to, with some closing comments, seeking to be brief here, I was thinking just after I prepped and was thinking yesterday about the Good Samaritan and how sometimes when we hear that story, we think, man, I've never loved someone that way. I need to do that. I need to love someone that way. And, and it's like, you know, in that moment, you're thinking, I need to love one person that way at one point. You know, like I, I need to do those things for one person uh, because that's what love would be. You need to do that for every person you ever come in contact with forever at every point of your life if you're going to get to heaven through being good. And none of us have done that with our favorite person. Our favorite person on planet earth, none of us have loved them for one day as we have read this morning. Thank God the Father that Jesus is the good Samaritan. Thank you, God, that Christ Jesus has come and fulfilled the law And he has, because he is love. And all that we need to be, I want you guys to hear this loud and clear, all that we need to be and do in the Christian life is found in the love of Christ. All that we're called to do and be is rooted in who God is and what he's done for us in Christ. All that you need is found in the love of Christ for you. All that you need is found in the love of Christ for you. And here before us this morning is a physical display of the love of God, of the love of Christ for you. Let's pray.